I just thought Hope's first step was wonderful. And, and I have to admit, I've been, for some reason, thinking a lot about my parents the last few days. And I'm going to tell you this, the 64 box, I longed for that 64 box. Nothing above the 16 crayon box ever in, to start the school year. And I think my mother would have just rolled her eyes at the color Sweet Bitter. I don't know what else to say. It's sort of strange for me to come to this topic this morning. I preached on it maybe eight or nine years ago, but I've been struck by the continued conversation in our world, in our country, in our communities around science and religion. In particular, um, currently vaccines and religious objections to the vaccine. Our congregation, for most people has never had a chance, have never had to separate science and a life of faith. And many of us have always thought of them as complementary, going hand in hand. But then as I was thinking about vaccines and religious objections to them, I looked up a Gallup poll that I was certain I had seen a couple years ago, and I did find it. And it showed that just in 2019, 42% of Americans were against the teaching of evolution because it was against their faith. I mean, 42% of Americans. And then I thought of when I oftentimes do and ask the pastor with our high school students, and I invariably will ask this question because I want a chance to respond to it. I'm used to what their answer has been. I'll say, how many of you, just a show of hands, I'll say to them, think that you can um, love science or be a scientist and still be a person of faith? And usually it's about a quarter who raise their hands. It's always stunning to me that that occurs. And so I go on to talk about how faith and science can be complementary and go hand in hand. But that experience, the religious, some religious objections to vaccines and, and the Gallup poll of two years ago shows that the science and faith conflict continues. It's not complementary. However, I also have a book that our dear Paul Stifler gave to me, and it had been given to him by, as he said, an, an aged pa pastor who was a mentor to him that was written in 1921, 100 years ago, and it was entitled Evolution and Genesis. It was written by a Congregational New Testament professor, and in his introduction he says, 100 years ago, the following pages will show how evolutionary and scientist, science theory and the idealism of the Bible are not mutually exclusive, but complementary. So, in that spirit, receive this reading from the second chapter of the book of Genesis. It is the contemporary English Bible version. There was in the first chapter what is known as the first creation story, and this is part of the second creation story. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that God had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when humans were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no human to cultivate the ground. 
Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then God formed humans from the soil of the ground and breathed in their nostrils the breath of life, and they became living beings. This ends the reading from the book of Genesis. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, O God, and the meditations of each of our hearts be offered humbly and faithfully. Amen. Well, you heard in Genesis, right? There's no fields sprouting yet. There's no plants on the earth. And they come first. So science and faith not only are complementary, but sort of agree um, on one thing, that we are not the first living things on earth. And in fact, that we humans haven't been around all that long. If I were to fling my arms wide open, and this gesture sort of gives you a glimmer of the very beginning of life as amino acids or even bacteria, and now. If this is the whole span of life, from here all the way to about here, in time is nothing but bacteria. About here begins multi-celled organ, organisms, starting here with time. Here, the dinosaurs arrive. The dinosaurs die about right here. Humans, about the width of a nail cutting. And what we think of as civilization from Sumeria to the Greeks to the Romans through Jesus to the babies baptized this year, in this span of time, unable to be seen by the human eye. Now, for some, that might be a little unsettling, and they might even begin to suggest that, well, where is, is, is God in this process at all? And, and someone might even say, well, given what you just said, then Darwin trumps the divine. But I want to tell you, if that, that was your conclusion, you would be not only in the vast minority, not just among Christians or people of other faiths as well, but even a minority of scientists. I mean, science, we understand, is a secular pursuit, but scientists are not necessarily secularists. A significant portion of them affirm a belief in the role of, of a divine spirit in the unfolding of life. They affirm that, however, not as science, but as a faith statement. And for many, the complexity of life does not point to the absence of God, but the complexity of life simply makes God all the more marvelous and mysterious. Now, you know what? We can always speculate on, say, what God was doing before creation, and it's been speculated on theologically for a thousand years or more. Martin Luther said in the, in the the 16th century, he was asked by apparently a young seminary student who raised his hand, probably thought he knew everything, and said, well, you're describing creation going forward, but what was God doing before creation? And it's said that Luther apparently leaned over the lectern and scowled and said, he was making whips and chains for people who asked such questions. <laughs> but science and faith really are complementary. They go hand in hand. Think about it in this way. Science, I mean, the beautiful anthem sung by the choir and the one that Janet offered, science can explain to us 
the actual vibrations in the air caused by music. They can even tell us about the excitations of our eardrums when we heard those beautiful anthems. But the mystery of music, how it can transport you, be a doorway to the divine, how sometimes when you hear something so beautiful, your heart, I mean, literally feels strangely warmed. That's not a question for science, that's a question for faith and for art. Even Stephen Hawking, the physicist, said science will eventually tell us how the world was formed. But he added, only people of faith can speculate on why. So what about this story in Genesis? Simply put, and most of you are aware of this already, those verses were never meant to explain the origin of the universe in a scientific way. It's a world before science. But they were, those verses were written by brilliant, intelligent people who wanted to explain something just as marvelous, which is human consciousness. It describes the dawn of human consciousness. And it does so in story. It's not history. It's not science. But it describes how you and I are different from the other animals of the world. How we can be amazed and humbled by the vastness of the universe. That we know love and that we pay for love with the tears of grief. And maybe most remarkable of all, human consciousness allows us, and we discover this in Genesis, to ponder our mortality to know that our earthly lives have an end. Genesis is not a story of the scientific creation of the world. It's a story of the emergence of the soul, the human consciousness. Because if I was to go on, the next part of the story, very, what we discover is that Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge. And when they do that, their eyes are opened and they discover that they're naked. Was it embarrassment? Was it shame? That would be sad. Maybe it was also the delight of sexuality. Genesis is neither science nor history, but it's intended to be truthful in its own narrative story way because it affirms the eternal truth that we humans are different than the rest of God's creation. We are unique in possessing consciousness which allows us to know good from evil, right from wrong, hope from despair, and yes, love from hate. I mean, evolution is a scientific theory that seeks to explain how human life and life itself becomes more complex, but Genesis simply seeks to describe what it means to be human. Galileo said it, science tells us how the heavens go, but faith imagines what heaven might be like. I mean, that might be a good balance between biology and theology, except I'll tell you, some biologists even go on to suggest that what we call our consciousness, our joys and our sorrows, our ambitions, our memories, our hopes, our dreams, that these are still nothing but an amalgam of nerves and cells. There is no soul. But one writer has suggested that science with the without the idea of a soul or consciousness would make scientists nothing more than auto mechanics who can disassemble every part of the auto 
explain how each part works, repair some of them as well. But what the mechanic can never do is decide where the owner should drive the car or what she will discover in her journeys. Science tells us how the world works, thank goodness. But it does not tell us what meaning we will find as we work in the world. Genesis, as one writer said, is about seeing our world through sacred eyes. And sacred eyes can lead us to affirm that the God of love, over billions of years, little by little, coaxed the soul of humanity from the amino acids of nature and formed human beings who bring flowers to a spouse, stop to help a stranger fix a flat, who are angered by injustice or moved to tears by an experience of forgiveness. I think these expressions of the soul are not simply the result of nerves and cells, but rather they are the fingerprints of God. The fingerprints of God as seen through the eyes of faith. May it be so. Amen.